0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Matt Hall is a third-generation pilot. His grandfather flew in the RAAF during World War II and his dad taught him to fly in gliders and small aircraft. As a boy, Matt would sit in the back of the cockpit propped up on pillows so he could see out the windows. Matt joined the Air Force out of school. He came top of his class which led him to Australia's very own Top Gun school. When the US invaded Iraq in 2003, Matt flew alongside US forces. And it was there that Matt experienced the intensity and the terror of air combat for the first time. These days, Matt has swapped his fighter wings for air racing and he is now current Red Bull Air Race champion. Hello, Matt. Hello, mate. How are you? I'm well, sir. You started out on gliders, which is about (laughs) the furthest thing from an FA-18 Hornet, by the sound of things. Tell me about your first solo flight in a glider when you were 15. How were you feeling that day before takeoff?
0: Yeah, it was one of those things that I'd been expecting it to happen, you know, because you're training, 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 and then the instructor finally tells you you're ready to go. So I'd been waiting for this to happen, but um, they kind of sprung it on me, which um, I think was just a a method to make sure I didn't get too concerned about it. So the flight before was with my instructor. You know, I was thinking maybe this could be my check flight. But um, straight after takeoff, he gave me what's called a simulated cable break. He released the cable from the tow aircraft straight after takeoff. So I had to then, you know, it's a bit of an emergency procedure. I had to turn around and land back up the runway in the opposite direction, which I'd just taken off. And I rolled all the way through to, to where I'd started the takeoff roll. And I remember thinking well, wow, that, that's a waste. Now I've got to go for another check flight before I can go solo. So the instructor said to me, hey, just sit in the plane. I'll turn it around. We'll connect up the rope and go straight away again. So I was just sitting there. A minute later, he's standing in front of me with the tow rope, going, I'm, you ready to you ready to hook up? And I'm like, well, we can't hook up until you're in the plane. And he's like, no, you're going on your own. So my dad was actually the, the tow pilot and uh, he was parked next to me, looking at me going, oh, this is it. So he said on the radio, are you on your own? And I'm like, yep. So um, it was an amazing experience to be towed up on my first uh, flight by my dad, who then uh, joined formation with me once I was had uh, released the rope. So the
1: vehicle pulls you along the runway and then the the rope disconnects and then you're up in, in the sky. What does it feel like when you're up there alone
0: with no engine flying solo for the first time? Matt? Yeah? It was an amazing experience as far as freedom's concerned because you know, up until that point, uh, in my life, you know, I was 15 years old. Every single thing I did had a had a, a limit or a direction or a, or a instructions that I had to follow. You know, as a kid, you know, it's like oh, when you go to school, follow this route. When you when you come home, come back. Uh, be in bed by this time. Yeah, you know, there's no driver's license. I, you know, I was too young. So to be flying around in a glider on your own, where there's no roads to follow. You know, there's 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 rules to follow but you know there, there was nowhere no one telling me where to go or when I had to be on the ground again um so I actually just started thermaling away and um which is you know uh, turning in rising air currents and I climbed away from the the you know, the ground and and went on a bit of a um an, an explorer on my own and I remember thinking everybody in the world should get the opportunity to experience this freedom it was just so that was the overwhelming thing for me was um the freedom of being able to decide where to go and 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 how I'm going there, and and no one no one within a kilometer of me.
1: It sounds like the experience you know when you're a little kid, and you, <laughs> your dad pushes you along on your bike without the training wheels, and then all of a sudden you realise dad's not there at the back of the bike. Except multiply that by a thousand because you're up in the air. Is the solitude peaceful? Is that is that is that part of this lovely
0: feeling you're describing? It, it is, yeah. I'm I'm. My personality is probably more of a, um, you know, I enjoy being um, on my own. You know, I'm very, I'm comfortable, you know, I enjoy being around people, but I I enjoy being on my own as well. And I've flown over the years a a lot of single seat aircraft. And it's probably when I'm actually the most comfortable is when I'm in an aircraft on my own, especially if there's not a lot of radio, uh, radio chatter. And in a glider, there's not a lot of that. And yeah, the um, just 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 being able, yeah, just you're only responsible for yourself. There's no there's no other pressures. There's no other awkward conversations to fill gaps. It's just you and um, yeah. You, know, you go, I'll go for sometimes. I'll go for a day without talking to people in that uh, in that solitude environment. I just find it amazing to uh, to have that solitude. This
1: might be a silly way of putting it, but is flying a glider like like flying a gigantic paper
0: plane? It's not too dissimilar because. There's no uh, engine, obviously. So the way you stay up, either you come down in a constant glide, so like a paper plane from a big height, <laughs> just slowly descending, and you just steer it on on what you know a sled ride basically. But what you're able to do in a glider is is climb using uh, rising air currents, which are called thermals. And then you can actually, you know, if you've got enough thermals around, you can fly till till sunset. So you know, people people do very long flights. You know, I've flown a glider for six or seven hours in one go. Yeah, and it's um, yeah that that's the adventure of flying a glider. Is uh, if you've got the right conditions, um, it's it's an absolute adventure.
1: I've had the experience of flying in a small aircraft from place to place through the Great Sandy Desert in WA, and this little plane was constantly uh, encountering thermal air currents, which meant we were sort of bouncing around like a yo-yo through the sky, which was just from my point of view quite terrifying. Matt, can you tell me
0: what a thermal air current is and how it works? Yeah, so if you thought of the atmosphere as, you know, it's a fluid, uh, the, the air is a fluid. And um, as the sun heats up the uh, the ground, you'll have things like, you know, roads and quarries and car parks get a lot hotter than water or uh, grassy fields. And the difference in the heat then, you know, causes the air above it to get warmer as well. And then because, you know, hot air rises or, you know, in reality, cold air sinks because it's uh, more dense the hot air above the ground, the, the car park, for example, will then start to rise up, um, in, climb up into the air. And then it ends up being this, uh, you'd call it like a chimney, a chimney of rising air uh, going up to you know, what what's generally the cloud-based inversion layer. So uh, if you can find one of these invisible columns of air in the glider and then start turning inside it, think again like a, a chimney, you've got to go round and round in this column of rising air. You then get lifted up in the glider to where, it runs out of energy.
1: Right. So this this invisible column of air is rising up, and you're just looping around on the top of it, effectively to 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 lift you up. Can you see these things? I mean, they're invisible. Can you tell what they're going to do? Can you spot somehow spot a thermal air current just from the window of your plane?
0: You won't necessarily spot the thermal, but you can see either what what you'd call triggers on the ground. So if you if you're low you look for things on the ground that could trigger a thermal, such as a big car park or an industrial area. Or if you're a bit higher, thermals, because it's rising air um, and they have um, moisture in them, they form the clouds. So typically under a nice fluffy white cloud is a thermal and the clouds there because of the thermal, the thermal's going up. And then when it gets into the, the cool air, the moisture in the thermal condenses and turns into a cloud. So does that mean you're spent looping around through a cloud going up through the sky? The cloud only forms when it gets to a certain height and that's typically when the thermal runs out of energy. So you're actually below the cloud going round and round. and when you get to the base of the cloud is typically when the thermal runs out of energy and in gliders you're actually not allowed to go into the cloud because um, it's what's called visual flight rules. So uh, when you get to the base of the, the base of the cloud, that's the end of your free ride and you've got to go find the next one. In theory, can you stay up there for hours for as long as you like? Yeah, so as as long as it's the right conditions, uh, you can stay up yeah for for, for hours. In fact, um, if you've got something like uh, what's called wave lift or ridge lift, it doesn't even require the sun to be heating the ground. You can uh, you can actually r- run around in that for you know, a day if you want. So <laughs> typically, it's limited <laughs> to to when the sun's up. But at some stage, you need to you know, gliders aren't real big, and there's no uh, there's no um, uh, in-flight service, so uh, you run out of energy or you run out of enthusiasm. Uh, as or you need a toilet need to break or something,
1: over. or unless you've yeah. taken a, an empty Coke bottle up there or something. Well, that's
0: normally what happens, actually. So. Really?
1: <laughs> Fantastic. Now, the appeal in my mind for a glider would be, and correct, shoot me down in flames here, is that once up there, given the fact you don't have a motor, it'd be it'd be quiet and peaceful, and you just hear this sound as you were going through
0: the air is that how it is really up there? It's actually noisier than you'd expect because um, you know we're still doing about 100 kilometers an hour they look very slow from the outside like most planes look slower than they're actually going and a glider is generally doing yeah, somewhere around about 80 to 100 kilometers an hour so you've still got a lot of air noises uh, on the aircraft and then you generally uh, in more modern gliders you have instruments as well that uh, would tell you, how well you're flying and the instruments have audio noises so that you don't have to be looking inside while you're flying. You're just listening to the audio. So it generally, the the inside of a glider is noisier than most people think, but yeah, it's, it's still much quieter than being in a, in a powered aircraft. You know, you can, um, It's kind of like being on a yacht. You know, there's, you look at a yacht from the outside and it looks like everything's quiet, but when you're on a yacht, you can hear all the waves, you can hear the air, you can hear the sails flapping. That's the sort of thing in a glider.
1: Presumably though, if you get outside that thermal air column, are you at risk of just like plummeting like a stone from
0: the air at that point? No, not at all because once again like a paper plane, the wings are generating lift while you're moving forwards so uh, and you keep your, you keep your forwards progression just by um, controlling the you know, the, the nose attitude of the glider. And it's like, you know, even powered aircraft can glide. They're just not, you know, as good at it. So if you lose the engine in a powered aircraft, you glide to the to the ground and hopefully find a, a good place to land. It's just that gliders are very efficient and they're only coming down at you know, about six, 60 metres a, a minute. So, you know, if you're a kilometre above, above the ground, you know, you've got quite a while to, um, you know, quite a number of minutes to... Um, Get everything organised, and in that time, that's why you're looking for another thermal to lift you back up again.
1: And can you open the canopy and just wear goggles and fly in the open air?
0: No, not in the gliders these days. In the older gliders, they didn't even have canopies; they had windshields, and yep, you'd fly with um, with your goggles on. But uh, in modern, more modern day gliders, even in the last you know, forty years, fifty years, they've they've all had canopies that um, just keep the air off the pilot and the um, and the passenger if there is one. Boring. <laughs> I do love open air flying, so uh, I I'd probably
1: agree with you there. Yeah, the way the way it sounds to me, it sounds like something really pure and joyful. Or is that just being romantic?
0: No, you're exactly right. Um, for me, gliding is probably the most pure form of aviation. Um, it's yeah, uh, you know, it's it's you and the elements. You, know, you can't you can't just put more fuel in and keep going. You you have to earn every single moment you're in the glider, and you never know how each flight's going to, to end. And once again, with with powered flying, like you're saying, you're flying around, you know, the, the desert in Western Australia, you had a pretty good idea, at least you hoped you did, of how the flight was going to go. You're going to take off at point A and fly and land at point B, whereas a glider, there's no guarantee of where you're going to land because, you know, it's an adventure and it's how, how long you're going to be up for and where you're going to go is, is the adventure.
1: Like I said, you're a third-generation pilot. Both your grandfather and father flew planes how old were you when your dad started taking you up in planes with him?
0: Um, I don't really recall how how old I was, but um, yeah, it, I was I was less than a year old when I was flying with my dad. There's, um, you know, we didn't have the phones obviously to take take all the uh, take all the photos, but uh, yeah, I I remember some of my earliest memories are being in a plane with my dad, and just the, the memory are not things like wow I'm in a plane. The memory is just that's my normal environment. It's like having a memory of being in a car. You're not sitting there going, wow, we're in a car. It's just, this is what we do. So there was never that moment for me with, um, with aviation, which was like, wow, I love this. I'm going to do this for a job. It was just what I did. And it was just my assumption that I was going to do it for a job. There was no decision ever required. And can you have all those, you know, important father-son conversations up there where nothing's going to
1: bother you and nothing's going to interrupt you?
0: <laughs> um I don't think we had any of those conversations because we're always um you know we're always just um taking in what we're doing in the plane so um uh, yeah it's um I'd I'd just sit there and just be looking out the window just enjoying every single moment of it. And how old were you when your dad let you put your hands on the controls for the first time Matt? My guess uh, it was probably about um 8 or 9 years old and the limitation there was actually being able to reach the controls. Every, every time we flew, my dad would say, hey, do you want to, um, you want to have a fly? And initially, I, I remember my answer was no, because I didn't know if I could do it. And it was that whole fear of failure thing that I think cripples a lot of people in the world. And at one stage, I remember my dad saying, do you want to fly? And I thought, well, if I'm going to be a pilot, I have to learn to do this at some stage. And I reached out as far as I could, and I could just put the tip of my middle finger on top of the stick. So I couldn't even hold onto the stick. And I remember flying with just my my middle finger pushing down on the stick. And yeah, in I think that's probably why I became okay at flying, because I I learned from day one that you don't need to grip um the controls. You you fly with a with a nice light touch. Are you telling me
1: Hollywood movies aren't right? Because Hollywood movies have the pilot with sweat grappling with both hands on the joystick. The light touch is the is the way to go, you say?
0: Light touch is the way to go. Right. Yeah, there's been a few times I've had to hang on tight if you've got things going wrong and the, the systems aren't working right. But typically, a very light touch is how um, is it's like, you know, if you talk to a racing car driver, they're typically going to try and have as light a touch as possible for the conditions they're in.
1: Your grandfather was a World War Two veteran. He was in the
0: RAAF. Did he fly in Europe or in the Pacific? Uh, I flew in the Pacific, so Southwest Pacific, you know, PNG and all those areas. So uh, he, he wasn't in the thick of combat and he was flying um, you know, transport aircraft. He didn't talk to me a great deal about it apart from He'd talked to me about the aircraft themselves, about what the planes were like to fly, but he never really talked about what the operations were like, um, which is fairly classic for people of his generation of not really opening up about the actual operations but uh you know he passed away uh, about 15 years ago but I did have the privilege of taking him flying a number of times and um and letting him fly the plane actually and <laughs> um and just uh, yeah it's one of those things that uh, once you once you learn to walk you never forget how so uh, he he flew the plane beautifully
1: my dad joined the RAAF at the fag end of World War II and was posted to Port Moresby as a radio operator. And he, he said he joined the RAAF because of the glamour of the Air Force. He said it had the, the glamour of high technology. Of course, there was the flight aspect and Air Force men had the sharpest uniforms compared to the Army and Navy, or to his mind anyway.
0: Was that the attraction for your granddad, I wonder? My my granddad, what I, I do know that he was he – was, um, uh, Infatuated by flight, uh, like my dad and I was, uh, I'm not sure if it's something that you're born with or is just an inquisitive mind. Or, yeah, but uh, yeah, he he joined the air force because of the flying, and um, he lied about his age so that he could go and um, and fly planes. And uh, back then, you could get away with it because you didn't have a digital ID. So uh, he uh, off he went and um, did his his flying training, and um, and uh, but he didn't actually continue flying after the war. It's an expensive pastime and, you know, the Air Force uh, removed a lot of their personnel after the war and he was one of the uh, the consequences of that and uh, he didn't continue flying after that. Did your dad also consider joining the RAAF? He did. Um, so my dad got a scholarship when he was a teenager from the, um, the Air Force cadets and uh, they paid for his uh, flying training um, as a teenager and when he finished school, um, the Air Force yeah, asked, you know, would he be interested in in joining the air force as a pilot and he was influenced a little bit by his parents who who had experienced you know, war world war II, and they basically said that you know and this is in the time of the Vietnam war when my dad was doing this they said well if you join the air force it's not a flying club you know it's um it's say it's a war profession and if there's a conflict like there is in Vietnam at the moment Uh, You have to go over there and get shot at, and um, so think about what you want rather than just thinking it's a glamorous flying position. So, so my my dad elected to continue flying in a recreational manner and went and uh, got an engineering degree to uh, to work in um, in the civil area.
1: So, Matt, you grew up on a farm in the Upper Hunter region of New South Wales. What kind of home did your parents create for you as a kid?
0: Um, It was a good good place. You know, nothing nothing was lacking, um, but. Uh, my dad is a bit of a um do it all himself sort of guy. so um, we ended up on the farm we we uh, we grew up in a machinery shed while we were owner building um our dream house and um and for me, as a kid, I remember thinking this this is this is taking forever. in fact, it's taking a lifetime because I was a kid, and we were owner a building my entire my entire life there. and um and in hindsight, you know it was it was probably only for about six or seven years we were. Living in the shed while my dad built a house, which in this day and age is actually pretty pretty good effort for building a house on your own. Yeah, I reckon um, as a kid, I would have loved to have lived in a shed. <laughs> it was pretty good because you know, we used, we used to get all sorts of adventures. Yeah, you know, mm. we had horses and cows and dogs, and you know they'd they'd come into the shed at night time, and uh, <laughs> you know, we'd keep the hay in the shed with us as well. So the horses would often invite themselves in and uh, for breakfast. Um, so it was um, you know I, I grew up on motorbikes, I grew up on horses. That's probably where my solitude came from. You know, I was, I was more than comfortable, walking, motorbiking, or or horse riding, off into the bush. Um, yeah, you know, finish school and just get on a horse, bareback, and and uh, disappear into the bush for um, yeah, you know, four or five hours until uh, until I knew that I'd be in trouble if I stayed out any longer.
1: So you had that lovely experience as a kid, as a teenager, being trained in to fly gliders.
0: What did you think when you saw a fighter jet aircraft for the first time, Matt? uh i remember thinking that it's um it's hard to actually believe there's a human being inside the cockpit it's uh you know cuz everyone's watching movies at this time you know star wars and um you know it's for me um you know initially it was mirages and then i remember when we got the f18 in 1985 and seeing these aircraft and and for me it seemed as though it must be for sure a you know a computer and there's and there's like a robot like there's a Darth Vader in in the cockpit <laughs> because there's no way right. a human being could be having having that much of an
1: experience so you end up enrolling with the RAAF did you consider training as a commercial pilot instead or was it always going to be the RAAF once you'd seen a hornet for the first time
0: um no well it it went round in circles actually um you know uh, I was still a teenager at school when Top Gun came out and I watched that and thought yeah that's Absolutely incredible. And, and you know, I, I, I challenged someone who was my age that went and saw a Top Gun that didn't think, wow, I'd love to do that. Um, and that was me. It was like, wow, imagine getting to do that. But, um, you know, I, I was talked out of joining the Air Force by a number of people. Um, some people were, you know, like my parents were, gave me the same advice that my dad got. So it's not a flying club. Other people talked me out of it based on the fact they told me that I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be good enough. Um and uh, not to waste my time.
1: Really? You know, so I, someone yeah. said you,
0: you you wouldn't be good enough. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that's once again that's a reasonably common thing in the world that someone has a dream that's out of out of the norm. It's it's they don't you know people go well yeah you know, that's for special people. You're just from yeah you know, you're just from the small farm. There's no way you're going to be good enough to to be like Tom Cruise.
1: Hey farm boy. And they're yeah, going to let you fly exactly. one of those damn things. That that exactly. Right. So Do you think that discouragement I, did you good in the end, though? As a result, Did it sort of make you defiant.
0: For sure, because I I actually went. Well, I'll be a, a a Qantas pilot, and but that's expensive, and I couldn't I couldn't afford the the flying training. Um, and it was actually um, I met a, a World War II Spitfire pilot. He was a friend of the family, and uh, he told me he regrets that he was born so early. And a Spitfire was one of my favourite planes. I'm like, how can this guy? regret when he was born because he got to fly Spitfires and he said, I'd, I'd trade everything to have your opportunity right now to go and join the air force and fly the jet fighters, the supersonic jet fighters. He said, know, yeah, I can't imagine anything, anything, um, more fantastic than flying these, uh, supersonic jet fighters. And, um, and I realized, uh, he wanted what I had and I was throwing that away based on other people's opinions. So, um, I decided, you know, I'd, I'd rather I'd rather fail knowing that I couldn't do it than spend the rest of my life wondering if I could have done it. So um, I went, you know what, the worst thing that will happen is I'll fail. So I had a go at it and,
1: uh, and it worked out. So you signed up in January 1991. Now, as I recall, Matt, that was around about the time of the first Gulf War after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and the US led a huge uh, coordinated mission with its allies to kick Iraq out of Kuwait, given that that was going on by the time you signed up, did that sort of lead you to the thought, well, I'm actually not being trained to fly as such, but to be an, uh, a competent, to be actually involved in, in combat, should the need be. Did that sort of lead to the feeling that I actually might be deployed in a combat?
0: It did. Um, funnily enough, actually, the um, I, I was doing, it was my recruitment day, 17th of January, 1991. And I was at the the Air Force, you know, signing on the dotted line ceremony um, in Sydney. And uh, while we're doing this, um, uh, an Air Force person, I don't even, can't even remember if they were an officer or a sergeant. At that point, I didn't recognise the difference, to be truthful. <laughs> and they came into the room and said, um, just so you're all aware, um, America has just um, launched a, uh, an, an airstrike um, into uh, Kuwait against uh, Iraqi forces and uh, a war has just commenced. If anyone has have second thoughts, you're allowed to withdraw your application right now. But as soon as you sign on, you are going. And I can remember looking at my mum my <laughs> and dad with big they had big eyes looking at me and I'm like, Well, you know, I'm I'm too young and untrained and innocent to have they've had to have any effect on me. So I signed up and and off we went. And I remember watching on the TV all of the all of the things that were happening when you know, my first few days in the Air Force living in a mess, watching on TV of, you know, planes getting shot down and, but it still seemed, um, foreign, you know, like it can't actually happen to me because that was on the other side of the world by trained professionals. And I'm just, you know, little old Matt Hall, officer cadet, haven't actually even uh, sat in an Air Force plane yet. It just didn't seem like it was anything to do with me to be truthful. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au/slash conversations.
1: So you went off to Point Cook to study to be an RAAF pilot, to be trained as a pilot. How does
0: that training work, Matt? So I, I went to Point Cork and I had to spend thirteen weeks learning how the Air Force worked. So they call that officer training school where you learn how to march, you learn how to salute, you learn what the rank structures are, you know, All the all the basic defence force indoctrination stuff. And then you start your flying training and at that time, particular time, would start our training on what's called the C T four. It's a little piston engined side by side aircraft. Yeah, you know, very small aircraft and you learn the basics of flight, you know, how to take off, how to land, how to do some basic aerobatics, how to fly at nighttime, how to navigate, and uh, that lasts for about another six months, and, uh, and, and that's called number one FTS, and you, you graduate there and uh, head off to uh, the next stage of training. How demanding is that course? I mean, do people drop out as it goes along? For my um, intake, there were apparently 16,000 applicants for my pilot's course, of that, there were 16 Air Force and four Navy successful applicants who started my pilot's course with 20 of us. After the first round of training at um, one FTS at Point Cook, I think there are about 13 of us left to go to the second stage of training. Were you ever in any doubt that you were in the right place? The only time I was in doubt whether I was in the right place was when I was doing the officer training. I was never in the air cadets, never had anything like that. And uh, learning to march and salute, and uh, yes, sir, no, sir, it was quite a new experience. That's what you know. got
1: into planes to avoid in the first place, by the sound e- of things.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So here I was right. um, being uh, told where to be and what to do, and uh, that that solitude and that independence was even more far removed. But um, as soon as I got into the flying training, it, it was exactly how I thought it would be. Most most people were were nervous in their flying training and were looking forward to the end of it. For me, it was the best adventure ever. I was flying planes that people would pay money to go fly. And so every day for me was uh, was an exciting day because I got to go to get paid to fly. Even though I was under training, I got paid to fly. And for me, that was, um, you know, jump out of bed in the morning with a big smile on my face, whereas a lot of the guys on my pilot's course would get out of bed dreading the day that they had an opportunity to, to make an error and get uh, kicked off course. So you came top
1: of your class and you got yep. your wings as a result of that. And that's when they graduated you to jet fighter training, where you started to learn to fly the serious kind of super fast supersonic aircraft you'd always dreamed of flying. We're talking here like uh, the Hornet again. This is the Hornet, the same Hornet you looked at when you were at that air show all
0: those years ago? Exactly. So you you graduate from two FTS over in Perth, and then you transition onto uh, what's called a lead in fighter, which is, for me, it was the Mackie. And then you you get a little bit of training flying a jet, and then... Onto the F 18, which is, as you say, is exactly the same aircraft, you know, possibly the very aircraft that um, I used to watch at air shows in the mid 80s and think, wow, I can't believe there's a person in there. And all of a sudden, I am the person in there.
1: So I'm coming to the stage in my life, Matt, where I'm beginning to accept that I'll never be asked to fly one of these planes yes. myself. Um, I'd like you to just take me through step by step what it means to step inside one of these planes to fire it off and take take off. First of all, once you've climbed inside the cockpit there, what's in front of you in the cockpit?
0: Yeah, in, in the cockpit, they're, uh, you know, as you can imagine, they're quite complex with uh, switches and screens. And, you know, the first time you look at it, you're like, there's no way in the world I'm ever going to figure out what all these buttons do. But, you know, hard work, determination, study process all gets you through to being very good at it. And uh, there's two banks of uh, switches all the way down the sides to back behind you. But then in front of you are three uh, computer screens and then a keypad uh, directly in front of you that um, is uh, how you type stuff into the into the computer system. And then uh, directly in front of you is the, uh, the head-up display, the glass gla- the you look forward where all the information is presented. And But the big thing about being in a fighter is you look left and right. There's no one sitting next to you. There's no one sitting behind you. There's nothing in your way because the wing is um the wing is fifteen metres behind you with that little bubble canopy, it's the world's best, most unobstructed view of your environment.
1: So when you're flying in that plane, sitting under that perspex bubble, you can almost imagine yourself not to be in a plane at all then in some ways.
0: Very much so. Um, you are you, you never think of yourself being in an aircraft actually. when you're flying an aircraft, if you're you know, if you're really engaged in it, you are part of the aircraft, and up until that point of my career with the training aircraft, and you know, you flew basically in the plane with the wings sticking out the sides immediately next to you. So you'd always look out and see the wings. Whereas I remember my very first flight in a Hornet in the front seat, got airborne, and then you know probably sixty seconds later, where you know we're approaching supersonic speeds already, you know climbing rapidly out over the ocean. I remember looking left and right like I normally would. And when I did that, there was nothing to see. There was no wing, and I remember going, "Oh, this is real!" And turning around, looking way back behind me, and the wing was uh, was way back there. And it's like, I am in a jet fighter. And then, yeah, you know, and, and thirty seconds later, I was supersonic at um, you know, forty thousand feet, going, "Wow!"
1: Once the engines fire up, these these enormously powerful jet engines, do you feel do you feel that in the cockpit? Do you feel the roar of that?
0: Not really. Um, you hear the whine. Um, especially if you've got the canopy open, because the intakes are basically just down below there. And um, but as soon as you close the canopy, the, the noise—the only noise you're hearing—is um, is basically the air conditioner blowing. It's like just sitting in your car at the traffic lights, you just really. So, yeah, it's it's, very, so it's cl- so it's quieter than a glider almost. <laughs> in some ways, it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's probably not if you take your helmet and everything off. But they right. have got earplugs, helmet, a uh, a very thick glass bulletproof canopy over the top of you, which is pressure sealed for uh, the environment you're about to go in. And all the noise is actually coming out the back of the aircraft. Another unique thing about biters is, um, this was something that I never got sick of. In In a car, if you start accelerating in a car, the acceleration will last, if you're really going for it, the acceleration will last five or six seconds until the faster you go, the slower the car's accelerating. So the first second or two, you really push back in your seat. And then the faster you go, it's harder for the uh, the engine to drive the car to keep accelerating. With a fighter, they get what's called ram effect. So the engines actually become more efficient the faster you go because it's getting more air pushed into the engines for them to um, to, oh, to, uh, right. to, yes. to produce thrust. So with a fighter, it's just bizarre that you you release the brakes, you're... You, light both afterburners, and as you say, you accelerate to a point where you then rotate and then you clean up the aircraft. As you clean up the aircraft, which is pull the gear and flaps up, the aircraft starts to accelerate harder because there's less drag, so you actually get yourself pushed back further into the seat, and then as you go 300 knots, the aircraft actually gets the ram effect and continues to accelerate even harder. So it's it's this constant acceleration up to transonic or supersonic speed that is such a bizarre feeling because you just, the acceleration actually gets more as you're going through 300 knots.
1: So then you get off the ground, you start rocketing upwards and you get like 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G. How many Gs we're talking about here do you get when you're
0: in that acceleration phase? Well, the acceleration phase is, is not a lot of G. It's only about 1G rearwards. So it accelerates at about the same the same forces we have on our bodies uh, sitting on the ground. But it just means we're accelerating it's like lying on your back; you're just feeling that pressure on you, um, and it's not until we start turning that we get into uh, the large G forces. So the acceleration itself about one G, um, but the one G acceleration lasts for um, a good couple of minutes while you're uh, while you're accelerating to um, those supersonic speeds. And how many Gs do you get up to when you're t- when you're turning like that? Uh, in an F eighteen, it's uh, seven and a half G, and that can be quite long sustained of seven and a half G. So it's it's something your body can adapt to really all the blood rushing like I'm I'm
1: imagining here the blood's rushing out of your face and towards the back of your head as you're doing that literally speaking
0: it's actually rushing out of your head down into your feet so your legs all swell up and the the blood just uh, goes well you know what I'm feeling the G I'm just going to go and live in the legs for a while (laughs) and uh, your brain's going come back here So once
1: you get faster and faster, and then you'll break the speed of sound at Mach one. Now, commonly, of course, we know that when an aircraft does that, there's a sonic boom. If you're on the ground, you might might hear a sonic boom. Do you hear that from in the aircraft? What evidence do you have that you've broken, apart from your instruments, that you've broken the speed of sound?
0: It's actually rather boring these days. You know, you watch the right stuff, and it's yeah, instruments shattering and shaking, can't read anything, and yeah, it used to be like that, but. Uh, now, with the computers and the design of the aircraft, if you didn't have your instruments, you wouldn't actually know you've gone supersonic. Once you know the aircraft, you'll actually feel a slight. You know, if you've got you know hundreds of hours on the aircraft, you'll feel a slight change in its flight characteristics as you go through the um, uh, the supersonic boundary because the the shock waves have an effect on the flight controls. But typically, you won't be aware of it to the point actually where. Uh, it's it's a threat for us that um, we're not allowed to be supersonic over land and you have to stare at the instruments to make sure you don't go supersonic because right. it's actually <laughs> so easy to accidentally go supersonic in these fighters.
1: So, Matt, you were selected then to be part of an elite fighter combat school in Williamtown, Newcastle, a kind of Top Gun school, if that's indeed what it's called. Now, you know, in the movies, Top Gun pilots are portrayed as cocky, passionate. That's not right, is it? That's not right. I'm 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 guessing you're chosen for having the opposite characteristics.
0: Yeah, that's correct. So um, people come up to me often they're like, oh wow, you must be an adrenaline junkie for all of the all of the things you've done in your life. And you won't find pilots who are adrenaline junkies, like fighter pilots in particular, because we're all control freaks. We we plan everything to the to the nth degree. So we know exactly what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and, and that's the only way you win in a high speed environment like this. People often call me arrogant. I say, no, no, I'm confident. And the difference is an arrogant and confident person both have utmost belief in their ability to do the job. But a confident person at the end of doing it says, how could I've done better? What can I do next time to be even better? Whereas an arrogant person goes, did you see that? How good was I? And so fighter pilots are confident. They're very passionate. They have a big belief in their own ability to get the job done. But if someone's talking, they'll listen so that they can improve.
1: So then you were posted to a U.S. Air Force base with the United States Air Force. And this was around about the same time as the attacks on 11th of September 2001. By the time you got there, America had been attacked. What was the atmosphere like on the base in the wake of those attacks?
0: Uh, It was, I guess, an attitude of disbelief. You know, Everything seemed surreal because when I got to the American base to start my training, the squadrons were doing... um, Uh, airborne CAP, which is a combat air patrol, overhead Washington, protecting the president from any further attacks. And uh, it had never been done before. Having American fighters patrolling over American skies, it was a funny situation to arrive in as as a foreigner to fly their aircraft when they're involved in operations overhead their own country. So after
1: that, we know that President Bush decided to invade Iraq, and launch Operation Iraqi Freedom in early 2003. US armed forces were gearing up for this
0: invasion of Iraq. What did that mean for the squadron that you were, you were seconded to? Well, basically, the squadron I was in had most of its personnel pulled out and put into a different squadron, a, a larger squadron, that then deployed to the Middle East for Operation Iraqi Freedom. And uh, because of my nationality, I was, I was over there on exchange program, so I was still an Australian officer with a, an Australian flag on my shoulder, Embedded in an American unit in America, and because that unit was being um, basically stripped of its personnel, I was uh, stood down uh, and, um, and grounded while they uh, while they took everybody else um, to go uh, overseas and, uh, and fly uh, war ops. And you don't join the air force to be to go to war, but it was it was quite devastating to me. Not not because I was being left behind in a war environment. It was devastating because my job was to keep my friends and my extended family, being the Air Force, keep them alive. Uh, so I felt like I wasn't doing my part in um, keeping my family safe. So what happened in the end? There, there were some talks that I was actually unaware of going on at the time between, you know, prime ministerial and presidential uh, office level to have me allowed to participate. And uh, that actually came about, um, about a week after my squadron uh, left America to the Middle East. And um, and then I was told, hey, we've got approval, pack up your stuff, you're getting on an airline in uh, in two days time, and you're going to meet the squadron in the Middle East. And uh, that's exactly what happened. I uh, I packed up, got some quick briefings on uh, survival techniques in the Middle East and uh, jumped on an airline and actually flew into a, a war environment on an airline. So what can you tell me about your first combat mission? My first combat mission was um, was at the start of uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. I, I was involved in the um, the shock and awe mission, which was the um, you know, the, uh, the attack on um, on strategic targets in uh, downtown Baghdad. So I remember doing the pre flight on my aircraft, the F15, and uh, thinking how ironic it was that you know I had I had you know a couple of thousand hours on the Hornet. Uh, I'd been to Top Gun school in the Hornet. I knew the aircraft like the back of my hand. And here I was about to strap into an F-15. I'd never even seen bombs on it before, and I was uh, I pre flying a bomb, realising I had uh, less than 100 hours on this aircraft and I'm about to go and get shot at um, at the start of a war. Was there any serious risk to you from
1: uh, surface-to-air missiles or from the Iraqi Air Force, such as it was in that, at that time?
0: Uh, definitely. So the, the airspace that we went into uh, was the most defended airspace in history. Uh, there'd never been any airspace that was more defended than... Um, than the airspace overhead Baghdad. So we went into that first mission expecting to lose jets. And uh, my squadron boss at the time, who's a great mate of mine, American, he he actually personally drove me back to my tent the night before to get some sleep. And he said, be safe out there. And uh, if you see a MiG bag it... And, uh, a MiG being a
1: Soviet-made fighter jet.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it, that's a pretty real statement when your boss is telling you... Um, be safe in a war environment, and um, if you see uh, if you see an enemy aircraft, kill it. Um, and that's that's they're the words I went to bed the night before, and um, we didn't lose any any jets on that first mission. Um, there were no enemy aircraft that launched, but we had we didn't know that that was going to be the case. Uh, but I did get shot at uh, on that first mission. What do you remember of being shot at? <laughs> my my first thought was um, why are they shooting at me? What what have I done to them? You, know, you, you you take it personally initially, um, you know, when, when you first get shot up, it's like, you know, why are you shooting at me? Because it's just, it's not, you're not expecting it. Or me you, me in the right plane it. with all the bombs attached to it. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, mm. the, that's this, you know, it probably last, that thought lasted half a second um, until you realize, well, fair's fair, I guess, because I'm actually dropping bombs on you. You're allowed to, you're allowed to shoot back at me. So, um, but yeah, your first, first response is uh, I'm a nice person. You know, why, why are you trying to shoot me? It's just that whole initial preservation jump you know, takes over. It's like you know, people shouldn't be shouldn't dislike me that much. But then you realise you're actually you're doing uh, the government's work in a combat environment. I'm
1: sure when you're doing that, you have all this training and discipline, so you you keep your nerve. But once you've returned and you're back on the ground for that mission, in all honesty, are you are you sort of a bit shaky after that?
0: Generally, not. I was actually surprised at how disciplined it. It was, yeah. I've got to admit, the first time, the first time I got shot at on that mission, I did fly home. You know, it was about a forty-five minute transit back to the home base. Flying back, I was, I was actually dreading listening to the tape because I couldn't recall how I sounded on the radio and whether I was squealing like a, uh, like a stuffed pig or whether I was swearing in a very Australian way, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. it was going to be obvious who was talking because, you know, I was the Aussie flying the American aircraft. There is, I was the only one and it's like, uh, yeah, it'd be ob- obvious, who it was, but it, when we reviewed the tapes, so I did everything exactly as per training. Um, you know, I was calm on the radio, telling people where to go, what to do and uh, how to avoid getting shot. But th- there was one particular time that I did land, and I was—I did have a lot of—I'd had a lot of adrenaline through the system, and you know, whenever you've had a, a lot of adrenaline through the system, you know, you do have a period of coming off that where you're shaking and um, and y- and you have a little bit of disbelief in uh, in what's occurred. So you flew mission after mission on this. Tell me about the day
1: when a missile was being launched at your plane.
0: Yeah, well, that—that's actually the the time where I uh, I did have some um, some post flight issues from it. So, um, I ended up, I was in a, in an environment I didn't want to be in. And once again, my squadron boss, who was my mate, had warned me the previous night going, don't let these guys kill you tomorrow. Because I was normally, I was leading missions, but in this particular one, I was, I was a wingman and they led me into a situation that I would not have taken myself into. What do you mean? They were flying low and slow below a cloud layer, uh, which basically highlights you to all the enemy and your you're low, so you're within the field of fire. And slow, which means that you haven't got a lot of manoeuvrability. And uh, there's there's no way I would have put myself in that situation or my wingman, uh, but they did. So I was, I was already very, very concerned about the situation I was in uh, and, in fact, taking my own defensive actions so that I didn't get shot at. But uh, as it turned out, I got shot at and uh, it was a near miss actually.
1: So when you say that you you were advised by your squadron leader, don't let those people kill you, did he didn't mean the Iraqis then? He was talking No, about... he
0: meant my own squadron buddies. Mm. Don't let these uh Yeah, the words he used was don't let these clowns kill you tomorrow. <laughs> so I was already pre warned uh, of not letting them get me into a situation that got me killed and I still I still let them do that to me. When did you know you were in trouble? I was had my eyes out of the cockpit, it was nighttime. I was on night vision goggles. So I could see a lot going on around me. Uh, and I was in a right hand turn, happened to be looking down at the ground and I saw a, a, um, a missile launch. You can see that, you know, you can see the missile launch with the night vision goggles. I was, you know, I was probably about 17 or 18,000 feet. And the So this the missile, is a ground missile. This is a ground, missile. ground missile. Yeah. It yeah, comes out of the ground. So and it's a very bright light, Yeah, extremely bright light. And it went shooting forwards underneath me. So in my, my direction of flight, it started moving forwards rapidly, which is what a missile is going to do if it's trying to get you, because it tries to get out in front of you to then pull back and hit you. And I remember seeing that and my lead was in front of me and I thought, oh, it's going after him. I don't want to be near him now. It's his fault. So I broke right and told him there was a missile launch. And as I broke right away from it, uh, it turned with me. So it followed my flight path. I'm like, oh, that's That's a coincidence. Lead must have also gone right. So I actually reversed the turn and went back to the left to get away from where the missile was going, looked down as soon as I turned left, and the missile had changed directions, was going left with me, and say, okay, that's no longer a coincidence. It's on me. You're the guy. Uh, Yep. You're the birthday boy. It's uh, You've got the... Everyone's focused on you. So I knew it was all going to be over in a a matter of seconds, so I, I came back to the right. I lost sight of the missile because the engines only burned for about three to four seconds on those missiles. So I lost sight of it and I knew the impact was probably only a matter of a, a second or two away. So I went into what we call last ditch defense, where I um, I uh, released a whole heap of uh, expendables out of the aircraft and did a maximum G G roll around where I thought the missile likely was. Uh, didn't see it go past, uh, conducted another one just to, to be safe and um, didn't see it again. And Flew away, uh, shaking and um, knowing that I'd uh, I'd just nearly died.
1: So after the your deployment to the Middle East ended, you you came back, and I suppose you had to ask yourself, what now?
0: Yeah, you know, I'm a big believer that you've got to have you've got to have big dreams ahead of you, you know, with uh, with goals in place of how to get there. And uh, I actually found myself lacking in enthusiasm for life. You know, there's probably a little bit of PTSD already starting at that point. And I, I, I couldn't really see what the purpose was of what I was doing now, because you know, I'm living in America flying what I still consider to be one of the top fighters in the world, uh, having just come back from combat. And there I was, I was back on a training range, teaching people how to fly these aircraft dropping training bombs. And it's like, what am I doing here? So I realized I had to give myself a new dream. And, um, and that dream I initially came up with was to be a world champion aerobatic pilot. So I went and Went and bought an aerobatic plane and started flying aerobatics on the weekend while still flying the fighters during the week. So then you entered the
1: world of air racing. Now, I've got to tell you, Matt... I really enjoy watching air racing on TV every time I've watched it, but it's a bit like watching mixed martial arts or something. It's a bit of a guilty pleasure. Like I think I'm having a pretty good time watching this, but the person participating it who's entertaining me is taking insane risks doing it. Like you're, you're flying a plane like sideways between these gigantic bollards. You're flying under bridges. You're spinning around doing loops. It's, it's amazing to watch and it must feel amazing to participate in. How does it compare to flying a fighter jet?
0: It's uh, very similar in some regards and I think that's why I I did okay at racing was because I was able to harness my mental structure that I used to put in place for flying the fighters, you know, to, you've got to have your brain in order to be able to go to war and get shot at and it's the same with racing, you have to have your brain in order to fly under a bridge and then go and pull 12g at 30 feet around a pylon and, uh, and not kill yourself. So that side of things was very similar to flying the fighters but the actual flying of the aircraft is um, completely different and um, I had to retrain myself in a, new, a brand new discipline but with the same mental attitudes I had in the fighters about being well prepared and not wanting any adrenaline, it was actually, you know, I believe, quite a safe sport uh, as long as you kept your mind in order.
1: To fly at an elite level, you obviously have to be very physically fit and you've been doing this now for 30 years or so. Are you made of concrete? or is it
0: starting to take a toll
1: now on you mat?
0: <laughs> it's definitely taking a toll um yeah my back and my neck they need to be warmed up every day that's for sure i, I you know i have to do about half hour of yoga every morning just to get uh, the joints moving so it does take a toll uh, like i said the average person passes out at 4g in the fighters we're going to seven and a half and with this i'm going to 12 so it's uh it really is superhuman levels of um of g-force i'm going to and uh I have to work very hard at keeping my body injury free and um, I guess flexible enough to continue with a, a normal life.
1: You know, I've flown in planes many, many, many times, passenger aircraft from here to there or whatever. And you've spent a life in the cockpit looking all around you and looking down at the land with an almost un, unobstructed view. So I don't really get to see much of the land, is what I'm saying when I'm in a passenger aircraft. And when I think of the world around me, it's always from a ground POV. But you must have a very different view of the world to me because you've spent so much time in those planes with that far
0: less obstructed view of the ground. Is that making sense in a way? It is. It is. The world the world becomes different when I take off. It's something I'll never get sick of. It's something I I long for because we, we live in a 3D world, but as far as I'm concerned, the majority of the world's population live in a 2D world. There's There's forward, back and left and right, and that's it and you see you see the perspective as far as you can before an obstacle gets in in your way whether it's a wall or a tree or whereas i i get to live in a three-dimensional world where i can go up down left right forward backwards uh, i get to see the world without its um without its ugliness when you're above the earth it's beautiful i don't get involved in politics i don't get involved in arguments uh, i i am in an environment where it's just me and my thoughts and a beautiful landscape below me.
1: Matt, I would loved hearing your story today. Thank you so much.
0: my pleasure to be here.
1: Matt Hall is a former RAAF jet fighter pilot and he's the current Red Bull Air Race champion. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash
0: conversations. Earshot is back with a new season called Follow
1: Me. Meet a doomsday cult leader. When these chastisements happened, hell would be opened and all the devils would walk the earth. I mean, loving The
0: Cure now. Die hard music fans.
1: At the tender age of 52.
0: (laughs) And a mother trying to keep her daughter safe and sane online. Restricting and banning just hasn't worked. Come follow Earshot on the ABC Listen app. What path can I follow
1: to not feel this anymore?